As a successful and growing online selling warrior, you'll probably eventually run into big, ugly legal words like trademarks, copyrights, and patents. There's no need to be intimidated, though. We've got your back, and you can handle a lot of these things yourself. The laws in the U.S. are specifically set up to protect free trade and sellers like us. However, there are a few things to be aware of when selling goods online. On today's show, Jim interviews a lawyer who has worked with over 100 Amazon sellers as they face questions and legal challenges regarding their products. After this show, you'll know when to use a lawyer and when to go it alone. Buckle up for another episode of Silent Sales Machine Radio. It is time for another episode of Silent Sales Machine Radio. I'm your host, Jim Cockrum, and today's topic is going to be very popular, I have a feeling, because I've actually got a real-life lawyer on the line with me, Mr. Jeff Brilowski. How are you doing today, Jeff? Wonderful, sir. How are you? Man, great to have you here, buddy. And uh, you helped us out recently in our business, and you came highly referred from some friends in the business. And I'm just so excited. We've been trying to get you on the line for a while but you're the guy, like when things get a little confusing or hairy from an, an intellectual property or a trademark or an infringement, these rights owners issues, those kinds of things, copyrights, you know, that stuff that us sellers, we don't want to deal with that stuff. We need, it's kind of like with my taxes, man. Um, it's like, oh, I just want a good lawyer to handle that. Same thing with this stuff. I just want to sell stuff to happy customers. But sometimes we get in over our heads and we have situations where we need a guy like you, Jeff, to come in and help us out. So I think where I'd like to start today is, uh, well, a couple places. Like I mentioned, one, we used your services, man. Handled it brilliantly. Just, I, I watched the back and forth between you and the other party. We had an, an intellectual property complaint. Actually, we unknowingly were selling a copyrighted product. I mean, we'd bought it from a reputable outlet doing some retail arbitrage. We're like, hey, how could this be counterfeit? It's, we bought it off the shelf at a retail. It can't possibly be. Well, come to find out it was. And you helped us navigate that and we got the complaint resolved and the other party was happy and you handled all the legal work and it, it didn't cost us an arm and a leg. It was, it was beautiful. I was so pleased. So I thought, man, I've got to figure out how to get this guy plugged into our community and, and have you help more sellers like us. And uh, I'm excited you're coming to our event as well in Orlando in September. So lots of good stuff to talk about today. But man, let's dive in. Jeff, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the services you provide and, and go ahead and tell us right off the bat how people can find you. There may be someone chomping at the bit today going, oh man, I need to talk to this dude. So fill us in. Oh, sure. So my website, if you go on the internet, it's atlawip.com. And that'll be in the show notes too. So if you go to silentgym.com slash podcast, look up this episode, we'll stick that in the show notes. But go ahead. Didn't want to interrupt you there, but for people who are maybe in their car or are taking a run right now, they can't write that down. Go to the show notes anytime, guys. You know that. All right. Keep going, buddy. Okay. And then my office phone is 678 667 Three four nine one. I thank you for the really kind words, uh, Jim, and it was a pleasure helping you and Judy out. What I'd like to start out saying is that I do handle more than intellectual property. My background is that I was a federal prosecutor for six years, so I know criminal law. I then went to business litigation, and then my forte is intellectual property litigation and filing different forms of IP. I've got five advanced degrees, including an MBA. So I truly help businesses, not in just one facet like IP, but I fit into the bigger picture of the main goal. How are we going to make money? 
And so if we go into the specifics, we really need to start with the three major rights of intellectual property or IP. I think that every one of your subscribers has heard these terms before, trademarks, copyrights, and patents. However, I find that a lot of Amazon sellers really don't know the difference between them, what they protect, and how they function. So as a really, really quick overview, trademarks are anything that can connect you, the seller, or the business owner to your product. Such things as you've seen the Nike swoosh. Obviously, that's a trademark for Nike. Or the Delta Triangle for Delta Airlines. But there's other things that some people don't know about. Patterns, like the Burberry print, that is a trademark of Burberry. Specific scents from perfumes or major cosmetic companies that make those, those can be trademarks. I know, even like a sound, man. Can You, you can do a sound too, right? Like uh, Harley-Davidson, weren't they famous for trademarking their sound that their bikes make? Yeah, even better than that is uh, NBC. Every time you heard the three chimes, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah. That's NBC. And then like colors, like Home Depot is orange, Best Buy is blue. Hmm. Okay, so enough about trademarks, but that's probably the biggest issue that Amazon sellers are going to get into from the beginning and from when they grow up to become private label sellers. The next is copyrights. Copyrights cover any artistic works, and that ranges from movies to books to artwork, CDs, audio, musical compilations. That's how that works. And then finally, we have patents. The traditional patent that almost everybody hears about or knows about is the utility patent. A utility patent covers something functional, like how your monitor works or how a motor works, something that is usually moving and definitely in the Amazon case. But something that's a little bit less known are called design patents. These are really good in that they're very cheap to file compared to a regular patent. A regular patent costs about ten dollars to $12,000 initially, and then another ten dollars to $12,000 over the three years that the USPTO goes back and forth with us. However, a design patent, we can get it filed and usually get through in the first time for about three dollars to $5,000, depending. And the benefit of that is that it protects how something looks but it's functional. It usually really wasn't that big until about two years ago when Apple sued Samsung and got a jury verdict for $1 billion. Whoa. (laughs) Now, everybody thinks that that patent war was a utility patent, but it was actually really simply a phone. It had two sides, it had four corners, and it had a button. That's what got I think $800 million of that um, cash award. So with that case, design patents really came back into vogue. Now, these all sound very scary, but I'm going to use it as an analogy with real property. So everybody's familiar with real property. They own their house. They own their yard. Okay, It's the same thing with trademarks, copyrights, and patents. You own certain rights within that limit. So like with real property... You have like a deed or a survey done to show where your meets and bounds are, where your driveway starts, where your yard ends. Intellectual property is the same way because in the registration certificates for all IP, it explains to the rest of the world 
what you own and what you can exclude them from doing. Now, all of the rights are very similar to real property. If somebody comes on your lawn and you don't want them there, that's a trespass. You can ask them to leave. You can call the cops. You exclude them from your property. It's the same with trademarks, copyrights, and patents. If somebody's using your trademark, somebody's violating your copyright, or somebody using your patent, you can exclude them from doing that. However, on the flip side, it's not always very scary. If you're the accused seller of violating one of those rights, I often find holes in one of those things, like either they don't own the intellectual property or their rights boundaries are not infringed by you. So that's the good news. And help me out here. Maybe you were going to get to this, but I just want to speak straight to some folks in our audience right now with something specific. First sale doctrine plays in here as one of those holes. We, could, you know, For example, if I go to a retail store and I buy a bunch of widgets and I turn around and sell them on eBay or Amazon, the first sale doctrine is that law in the United States that protects me and says, hey, now I own it. Now I can sell it to whoever I want for whatever I want. But I know there's some fine lines there too. Is our discussion of trademarks, copyrights, and patents taking us towards that? Because I know a lot of people in our audience, that's what they do. Some of them, that's all they do. A lot of us have gotten into private label and such. But you know, tie that into us as well, which uh, sorry if I interrupted you if that's where you were heading with that. But I'm curious how you address that with a seller. Sure. I wasn't going there, but that's an excellent segue. So infringement means that you infringe the copyright, the trademark, or the patent. The first sale doctrine is an affirmative defense saying that, hey, yeah, we did come on your lawn, or yeah, we did violate your trademark or copyright, but we're protected under the first sale doctrine. And generally, that means that if you buy an authentic item, you're not liable for any infringement if you resell it. And there's a lot of pitfalls, especially in case law. The John Wiley case is huge. It happened a couple years ago. What happened was Kyrgyzstan, and I'm probably butchering the name, was buying textbooks in India for very cheap. Overseas. Right. I remember that yeah. case because that's my publisher actually published my book. I remember this case. Very, yeah, I followed it. it. This is a good example. I love it. So yeah, he was buying a bunch of textbooks in India for pennies on the dollar, same books that we have here in the in the States, right? And he was selling them, and selling them in the States at huge markups. And he ended up winning, didn't he? After a long Absolutely. court battle, he won because of the first sale doctrine. Yeah. Absolutely. Gotcha. So what are some interesting details there? I mean, how close did he come to losing that? Did you follow that case closely? And what does that have to do with us as sellers? What's the lesson there? For me, that emboldens me as a seller. Oh, absolutely. The first sale doctrine is very, very broad, meaning that you have a lot of defensive protection in it. What you glean from that case is that the, the main issue there was whether or not the first sale doctrine applies to sales overseas as opposed to buying it here in the United States. Are you familiar with gray market goods? Uh, I've heard the term. I'd probably define it different than a lawyer would, though. Okay. We'll let you do it. So gray market goods are something that was authentic and specifically made for, like, let's say, Europe. Because the taxes are different there, you have VAT taxes or because you're in a cheaper area, it might cost different than here in the United States. So a famous case of that was Omega and Costco. Costco was buying genuine Omega watches over in Europe, importing them into the United States, and charging them United States prices and making a handsome profit off of it. No doubt. Nope. That's what's called gray market goods. 
And then the way that fits into the Kyrgyzstan case is that the court wanted to decide whether or not a first sale overseas extinguished their rights when it sold in the United States. And the court said yes. And the reason why this is that case was so important is because it applies to everything. So imagine everybody's car has a bunch of software in it. Software is typically protected by copyright law and a little bit of patent law. So imagine if you bought a car from, I don't know, GM, and then five years later, you want to sell it. But if you sold it, you're violating their copyright and trademark and patent. That would suck, right? Yeah, because you're selling their software to another party. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so in right. the Amazon sense, if you buy something that's authentic, like from Walmart, a widget, and you sell it on Amazon for a handsome profit, or not even a profit, even though you're using somebody else's trademark, whatever the name of the widget is, and even if it violates a patent, you are protected. And there are a lot of pitfalls, but the two most common I see that will take you out of the first sale doctrine protection is if you're not buying an authentic item. I know that there's a lot of Amazon sellers that buy from yard sales or they buy wholesale or they buy a crate of something. Or maybe they get on Alibaba. They get on Alibaba. That's a big one. And they think, oh, well, this is authentic. It has the name brand on it. And they buy uh, you know, 3,000 units of something. Yeah, I don't want to go too far down that road. But this, in general, I don't refer people to Alibaba until they really know what they're doing. Really, really got to know what you're doing there. If there's any brand name associated with the products you're getting off Alibaba, odds are, if you haven't done your homework, you're buying counterfeit product, uh, just in general. And, and I'd love for you to speak to that if you have experience there. But we've seen a lot of people get burned as sellers by sourcing from Alibaba. Yeah, there's really two points to that. And Alibaba is a great example. Number one, I have a lot of sellers that sell iPads for like regular price or $100 less, let's say $400. But then when they get an infringement suit, I ask them, well, how much did you pay for it? And they say, well, I got it for 10 bucks a unit. And I was like, <laughs> a red that's flag. a pretty good signal <laughs> that it's counterfeit. Yeah. I mean, common sense is needed here, guys. Um, popular electronics and popular name brands, if you're buying them for a fraction of retail from somebody in bulk, no. That's the equivalent of the guy you know, saying, uh, hey, I got these tools in the back of my truck, man. I got to move them fast. <laughs> and it's like, no, he, he got them by some unscrupulous manner. Be very aware. And you are opening yourself up to a litigation and you'll probably lose in those examples, right? I mean, and that's actually a small example of what my mom and I, you mentioned uh, my mom, Judy, she runs my Amazon business. So we got this notice and let's just tell people our story. You know, we're an inch deep, a mile wide. We're selling all kinds of stuff on Amazon and eBay and all over. And we got this IP infringement claim one day. And we're like, oh no, that guy's just blowing smoke. We bought this retail from a legitimate source. It's all good. So my first instinct was just to send them a note and say, hey man, we bought this stuff legit. Leave us alone. But uh, we got some advice. I said, hey, no, you need to go talk to Jeff on these. Take this seriously. Come to find out that th it was counterfeit goods. So we thought we were sourcing legitimate stuff, but we weren't. And we were taking precautions. We had our receipts. It was a legitimate chain retailer. They're not a big chain. You know, it wasn't a Walmart or Target, but they're a chain. They've got multiple operations. And so we sent this to you. Said, hey, would you take a look? And you dug in and actually discovered that, yeah, we were selling counterfeit goods. So I think that that real life example kind of fits in well here to, you know, the first sale doctrine didn't protect us there. We were violating someone's trademark and copyright at that point and probably their patent as well, right? Yeah, it was patented as well. We got the trifecta. The, the really thing there that I want to speak to really quick is that 
Infringement of intellectual property is strict liability. The first thing that my clients tell me is that, oh, I didn't know about this. I didn't mean to do it. It's not my fault. Well, if you sell it and it infringes something, you're liable, regardless of your intent. It's not intent. Now, on right? the other side, if you if you do have an intent to do it, you can get extraordinary damages against you, like treble damages, which is three times, or very, very bad court cases. And in, in fact, cop counterfeiting goods is punishable by 18 USC, which is criminal. And I've had two examples where I had to bail clients out of jail. Whoa. Because of IP issues. Amazon sellers? Uh, no. Well, one of them was, but the other wow. one was not. Wow. They were a brick and mortar. Gotcha. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, so this isn't stuff to mess around with. You need to, and I don't want to put a chill factor on anyone like, oh, this is scary stuff. We've got tens of thousands of sellers in our community alone, thousands and thousands every day, all day going out, sourcing retail, sourcing online, selling products. First sale doctrine protects all of it because once you buy something, you can sell it, but there are issues you need to be aware of. So make sure you're not selling counterfeit goods. Make sure you have legitimate receipts from legitimate retailers. If you're doing retail, if it's a yard sale item and you only got two or three of them, man, we tell people sell it on eBay. That seems to be the safe zone, but never go a thousand units deep or even a hundred units deep into something that you aren't rock solid certain. There are no trademark, copyright, or patent infringement issues going on there. And you've seen, we were talking earlier, Jeff, you've helped a hundred plus Amazon sellers at this point. You're seeing some trends here. And uh, we've kind of educated people on some of the terminology, but you know, let's dive into some of the real world scenarios you're seeing and some lessons we can maybe pull out of those for people, both to inform them. And I want to embolden sellers. Like the law is on your side. The first sale doctrine is a beautiful free market piece of legislation that protects all of us every day. So be bold in this. In those disaster stories, those examples that you have, you know, something went horribly wrong there. Someone ignored those signals. Nobody's out there wanting to just get rich by suing other people in the world of, you know, I don't want to say no one, but there are, you know, the vast majority of these cases are closed with very friendly terms on both sides. Um, just talk us through, you know, give us some examples. I'm really fascinated by this topic and I think the listeners are too. Okay. One thing that I forgot to mention, there are exceptions to the first sale doctrine. Obviously we talked about that. It was a counterfeit good. Of course. But the other one that is really, really huge. And I don't know that everybody knows it is the material different exception. And the way that the manufacturers are doing that now is saying that, hey, if you buy from us or an authorized distributor, you get an X amount of warranty, like 30-day warranty. However, if you don't buy it from us or these specific distributors, it is materially different, which means that you're not protected by the first sale doctrine. So when you buy items and you see shrink wrap on the back, it says you buy it, blah, blah, blah. It comes with a warranty only if it's purchased. Look at that language on the product. Look at that language in the product description on Amazon. The second thing is that you pointed out receipts, receipts, receipts. That is absolutely correct, Jim. A lot of times when you go to like a Walmart, you're not going to get a very good description of what you bought. So I know it sucks and it takes time, but just annotate like this is what I bought and this is right next to it for the price, the date, and the receipt. And then the final thing is you're saying buying a 1,000 units. That's absolutely correct 
Be very wary before you get into that. And if a manufacturer or distributor will not give you a letter of authorization from the specific seller, like let's say Samsung, if they won't give you an Samsung authorization letter for that specific product, they're probably doing something wrong and you do not want to do business with them. And then one final point has to do with Apple and Samsung. Apple, I wouldn't even sell it on Amazon. It is too hard. They've got a million attorneys and Amazon supports them. Right. This past year, Samsung has been the very similar to Apple in enforcing their rights. In fact, two months ago, I did a Samsung case, and it turns out that I represented six different sellers on the same uh, in trademark infringement. So I would steer clear of those two. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of big players now, big national brands, Nike, HP, some of these huge, you know, what we do, I don't shy away from them, but I shy away from them on Amazon. Like if I'll go and if I see six of them on sale on the closeout shelf, I've got a team out shopping constantly. I'm like, yeah, if we're buying them and we can make 60 bucks a pop, we'll flip them on eBay. On Amazon, there's just a lot of heat there right now. But the thing I want everyone to keep in mind in the back of their heads as we're going through this whole discussion is online shopping is in its infancy and it's exploding and people will find the deals. So be bold with your retail sourcing and grabbing stuff. If you can't sell it on Amazon, you can sell it on eBay. If you can't sell it on eBay, there's Facebook Marketplace, there's Craigslist. You know, again, going in a hundred or a thousand units. Nah, there's some legal exposure there you're not necessarily comfortable with if you don't know what you're doing. But buying a handful here and there and flipping them for great profits, as long as you're not doing anything knowingly illegal, you're not sourcing them from some sketchy yard sale or, you know, some China Alibaba iPads for $10 a piece, you know, come on, have some common (laughs) sense, right? I mean, like, that's not legitimate, guys. That will get you sued and shut down and fined. But if you use your common sense, it really is kind of a wide open opportunity right now. But under what circumstances, hey, I'd like to go here next, and, and we can drift around here. This is a fun topic. We, there's many directions we could go, but under what circumstances should someone contact you? I'm an Amazon seller. I've been contacted either by Amazon or by another seller who says, hey, you're violating my copyright. You've, you've infringed on my trademark. You know, At what point can we kind of blow them off? At what point do we say, ah, it's time to give Jeff a call? You know, Help us navigate that a little bit if there's a decision tree there that you could talk us through. Sure. If it's a law firm and you get that notice from seller performance that, hey, this ASIN has been suspended, and if you see a law firm and a lawyer, definitely get a lawyer. On the flip side, I've seen a lot of bogus rights owner. So it'll say Nike, and then the email address will be like NikeEnforcements at Yahoo.com. Well, obviously, (laughs) that's not Nike. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And actually, on that note, before we go further down this decision tree topic, you actually successfully countersued someone who had a competitor coming after them. I love that story. Tell us that story real quick. Um, Just a, a huge win for those of us who are doing this the right way every day, and then we have competitors come in and, and try to act like there's someone they're not accusing us of falsely. What does that look like? How can we tell if it's a false accusation? And tell us about that countersuit that you did as much detail as, you, as you're comfortable and able to share. Sure. My client was brand new, sold for about a month or two on Amazon. Revenue and profits were very, very, very low. It's amazing how low it was. Anyways, 
there were some unscrupulous sellers that were giving bogus complaints and making purchases and giving like poor reviews for this particular product. And on top of that, they would send rights owner complaints and get the ASIN shut down and say that, tell Amazon that, hey, we own this IP right. Well, we figured out that this was all at the hand of one particular seller and he was orchestrating this with his family and his friends. So what we did was we went to Amazon, gathered all of our information. We filed suit in federal court, district court against this person and some John Doe's and some John Doe's. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the reason why John Doe's are very important is because we didn't know who he is acting in concert with. So what happens is we file an expedited motion for discovery because discovery usually doesn't occur until later in the case. And after the court granted it, we subpoenaed Amazon. We said, we want to know the real person behind this one-star review. We want to know the real person, the IP address, the email address, the telephone number, the bank account number associated with this seller account. Oh, I love it. And with this rights owner complaint. Well, we got all that information and we amended our complaint. We put uh, the defendant and his mother and his uh, friends exposed in court as defendants. Well, within one week, we threw out like a a ginormous number, something that I couldn't even imagine them going for. But because this happens a lot, you get your friends involved. Hey, buy this and give one star review. He didn't want to put everybody else, his family, his friends into this kind of trouble. And he settled for something astronomical. And I'm talking about like a hundred times revenue that my client ever made on Amazon. That's beautiful. Oh, I love sticking it one week. I love sticking it to the bad guy, man. That is awesome. If you're out there, I mean, here's the lesson for sellers and and this doesn't happen that often. 98% of all the people on Amazon as sellers and buyers are just cool people, but you got that one or 2% of the jerks out there manipulating the system or you come along and you're selling your widget for $5 less than them. And they think you've infringed on their territory somehow. So they accuse you of whatever they can. They buy your stuff and give you one star reviews, et cetera. Like if you've got a bully, picking on you on Amazon, there's things you can do about it. And I love, I mean, you had, I didn't know this was a brand new seller, Jeff. That makes this story even better. Like (laughs) he probably retired from Amazon selling. He's like, Hey man, I kind of won that deal. Get in for a month, get this big check because someone was picking on me. But yeah, there are bullies out there. So you got to know when you're being bullied, which takes us back to the point we drifted off of. Okay. When do we know to call you? When do we know to get you involved? When can we kind of counterpunch on our own and say, oh, this this guy's just blowing smoke. I'm going to ignore this one. You know, help us navigate that. Sure. If you think that it's a legit complaint, reasonably legit, I would contact the rights owner on the email that Amazon gives and don't say anything other than, can you please tell me what right that you had, like what number of patent or copyright, what's the registration number, and then just tell me how I infringed it. Because you never want to go in there. And I see so many of my clients do it, and I hate it. They're like, oh, we didn't mean to infringe your copyright or your trademark. And then they respond, well, we didn't file this report for that. We filed it for patent. But now that you mentioned the copyright and trademark that you infringed, we're going to add that too. We're going to research that and add it on. (laughs) Yeah, I learned that early in life when I got called to the principal's office. 
just act really dumb and ask him what I yeah. supposedly did. Wait to see what you're accused of first, right? It's like, oh, that's all you thought I did. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then I can fix that. Yeah, that's easy. Yeah, a lot of times it is. It's just easy. Like they don't like I what one of the easy ones I've seen, for example, is and talk us through this one. This is a good one. You used a picture. Like let's say there's eight sellers and we're all selling the same widget. The owner of the trademark for that image or whoever has a copyright on that image is like, hey, you can't use that image. That's my image of that product. Oh, sure. So you get a notice. And like, and basically, it's just a matter of saying, hey, Amazon, uh, we need to change that image from this one to this one. Same product, just different camera was used and it pretty much looks the same, but it you know, doesn't have the same trademark protection on that image as this one. And you switch it out and everyone's happy. Life continues. I mean, we see that kind of thing. So don't freak out. There's a lot of little issues that are easily fixed, right? Yeah, there's a lot of different issues with pictures. So let's say that there's a particular ASIN and somebody creates it, they do the product description, they upload pictures, and then you piggyback on it. There is no copyright infringement of the photos, and it's in the participation agreement uh, that all the sellers have with Amazon. So you don't have to change anything if you're selling the exact same widget. It gets a little bit dicier when people take images from Amazon and they use it on their website outside of Amazon. That is clearly copyright infringement. Another way that sellers get in trouble is that they'll make the ASIN product description and then they'll use pictures, but they'll grab pictures from like say Apple's website rather than taking their own pictures. That too is copyright infringement. Right. We saw that on eBay there for a while. eBay finally cracked down and said, no, you have to take your own picture of the item. And then (laughs) sellers are using pictures that other sellers took and yeah, take your own picture. If If you're setting up a new ASIN on Amazon, just take your own picture. If it's a bundle, take your own picture. And then like you just said, if someone else comes up with the exact bundle, they can sell against it. It's in Amazon's policy. And they can use your picture. Don't freak out over that, guys. So we got to know when it is time to freak out and when it's not. Someone competing with you on price is not legal justification for you to go after them. That's just free market. Absolutely. If they figure out how to duplicate your bundle and they're nailing it, dude, competition, game on. It's called business. There's no legal case there. It's first sale doctrine covers them and you. So may the best man win. But knowing the difference is important. And I feel like this is the kind of topic, Jeff, I feel like we could kind of just sit here and do this for like hours. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be awesome. And I still want to hear some stories. I'm not trying to wrap it up here, but by any means, uh, we've got plenty of time still. But I just want to encourage everyone, and we need to have you back again. You're going to be a CES with us. I just want to drop this reminder as we're kind of approaching the halfway point here, or maybe we're past it already. But if you go to silentgym.com slash podcast, look up this episode. We've got a link to Jeff's website, his phone number, any other resources he wants to send us. And yeah, Jeff is the guy. He's the lawyer that we use and I'll use in the future if we ever have any trademark, copyright, patent confusion. But let's keep going down that road, Jeff, of when I need to call you and when I can kind of handle it myself. You've given us a couple of great examples so far. You know, help me know, because one thing everyone thinks is, oh, no, lawyers involved, it just got really expensive. And yeah, you need to be paid for your time. But like I said at the beginning, your rates were so incredibly reasonable. You've helped over 100 Amazon sellers at this point. You've got a great reputation. But you are going to have to write a check if you use Jeff. So what are some of these things that we can do on our own? to prevent having to call you and, you know, anything else that we've left out so far in educating people and when the right time to get you involved might be. 
Okay, sure. Let's go back to the rights owner complaint. Like I said, if it's bogus, you'll probably want to contact me because then I'll contact them and get them in trouble. Sellers and unscrupulous people think that they are masked, protected, and anonymous on Amazon. Well, federal district court judges don't agree. We're going to find out <laughs> who you got are. Proof. We've got a big check as proof of that one. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Law firms, I told you, absolutely contact a lawyer. And here's the case where you try it yourself. If it's like a legit email, a legit uh, person, and you contact them and say, hey, what did I do wrong? And they respond, and they just want you to stop selling on that ASIN, and you're good with it. Don't contact a lawyer. You've just settled it yourself. What I found is that attorneys are very busy and they're billing their clients for everything. So a lot of times attorneys will not reply to sellers and they're not obligated to. A lot of times other seller complaints that are real rights owners don't respond to other sellers. But I've found that 90% of the time, even when the seller wasn't responded to, I get some type of response from both attorneys and rights owners. That's when you want to get me involved, when you can't handle it yourself or if there's some legal issue that you can't handle. Give me an example of, and I I love this good information, but this is something I don't know. I I don't know how I'd answer this if I was on a panel at an event and like, Jim, give me an example of a case where you would get an email from another seller saying, hey, I need you to stop selling ASIN X and here's why. When do I need, without needing a lawyer, when do I go, oh yeah, time to stop selling that one right now? Like, what are some of those circumstances where I'd be like, yeah, I got to stop this. Okay. I've shut it off. I've deleted it. It's removed and I'll never sell it again. Let's part ways as friends. You know, what would they say in that letter that would make me do that? What would I be doing that would have triggered that? Yeah. First thing is that they actually are a rights owner. If they start off with, hey, we own the rights to US patent number X, Y, and Z. And then they say, this is your product. And then they go into the patent claims and say that this element is in your product. This element is in your product. Or if it's a trademark, this is a name that's very close to our name, uh, which is the likelihood of confusion. So stop doing it. If they do it detailed and they know their stuff and it, they have rights and then they're enforcing it. Obviously, if they show you a patent for a toaster and you're selling bottled water, I mean, you can check that out. So when you get a number, a patent number or a trademark number, go to USPTO.gov. Look up that number and see what it's all about. If it's not even tangentially related, just point it out. Hey, we think that this is for water, but you're saying that our toaster infringes. Same with copyrights. Get the copyright number, go to copyright.gov, look it up to see if it's something that pertains to your particular product. If it does, then you'll want to get an evaluation from an IP attorney. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, we've seen that. I love the tip you just gave. We'll put those in the show notes. If you're listening, by the way, guys, don't stop running. Don't stop driving to write that down. We're going to stick those two links in the show (laughs) notes, right? Copyright.gov and USPTO.gov, you said, right? Right. That's beautiful because I have heard of instances where people just make this. Anytime someone tries to compete with them on Amazon, they send out this warning letter. You violated copyright number, whatever. And like you said, it's a toaster. (laughs) and I'm not even selling a toaster. They just use the same one because they're lazy and they 
scare you with the fancy language. So yeah, anyone can go look up the number and see if it's even the right product that we're talking about here. So just with a little bit of education, I think we've given people a ton of value on how they can maybe put out some of these little fires themselves with confidence. What other things do you see sometimes you're like, ah, this guy didn't really need to call me. He could have just done a couple simple steps and uh, handled this one on his own. Any other examples come to mind? Not really, because usually my clients come in panic mode. They've done all kinds of stuff and they're like, there's nothing I can do. I need to get back on selling. It's been a month. It's been two months. I need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. They're a little nervous. And as online sellers, and this is an ongoing theme, Jeff, I, I don't expect that you've listened to a whole lot of episodes, but one of the things we encourage is multiple streams of income. This is the wild west it's it's a whole new frontier as my partner brett likes to say we're building the plane as we're flying it all of us which brings with it (laughs) great potential for rewards and flexibility in this lifestyle that was never possible for our parents and their parents but at the same time there's some new risks to be aware of and we're just you know we're doing our best here to help you navigate but that's why i talk about multiple streams of income you need to understand the basics of some of this constantly be educating yourself That's what this podcast is all about. I got a question for you, Jeff, just to kind of help people paint a little clearer picture of what you do and who you've helped and kind of what circumstances you found yourself in with some Amazon sellers. What percentage would you say, we talked about this earlier a little bit uh, before we started recording, but what percentage would you say of your interactions with Amazon sellers specifically or online sellers in general have been people who are saying, oh man, I heard from Amazon and I need some help versus people who say, I heard from another seller and I need some help. Like what's the mix there? What are you experiencing? And tell us some stories and maybe some lessons there from both sides. Sure. I'd say 90% are from Amazon because the other 10% that are from sellers, well, they start out with a conversation with you rather than just filing an infringement report. Right. So that usually says something about it. I mean, it's too easy to fill out that one-page infringement report and never talk to you again. They're, they're not obligated. So there's usually something sketchy going on there. Either they don't own the rights or it's not particularly applicable. I've found sellers that have used attorneys before for a particular product, for a cease and desist, but then they get a different product and they just fill in the blanks. Well, It doesn't work, and I see it because they're talking about a copyright doctrine when they're citing a patent. I immediately see it. So those are very suspect. Now, the ones with Amazon, it really is that you just fill out the infringement report. Like a couple seconds later, they get an automated email to the seller that is purportedly infringing. Before, about six months ago, you would have to resolve it with the rights owner. And if the rights owner didn't withdraw it, it was very difficult or impossible to reinstate your ASIN and or your entire selling account. Well, this past year, like around November, Amazon had been getting sued by big box companies for infringement themselves. They're saying that, hey, yeah, we know that the actual sellers are selling it and it's infringement, but you are providing the platform and you're not policing it well enough. So I've seen an uptick in the last six months where I've had 10 cases where I couldn't resolve it with the rights owner. They were just adamant or dumb 
or they just never responded. And then I wrote to Amazon. I laid out every legal aspect and the due diligence we did and the attempts at resolution with these uh, rights owners. And 10 for 10 in these particular cases have worked out where Amazon has unilaterally withdrawn the complaint which is good news for your sellers if you're in the right. Yeah, it ended with uh, on a happy note. Yeah, if you're, if you're doing things the right way, which again, doing things the right way means keeping your receipts, getting stuff from legitimate retailers. If you're purchasing wholesale, get the authorized reseller or distributor letter from, from every manufacturer you deal with. They should know what that is. If they're confused when you say, hey, I need the authorized reseller or distribution letter that shows that you're that, you know, you're allowed to be distributing this product, if they don't know what you're talking about, they're not legit if you're buying from wholesale sources. Did I say that right? Was that good advice? That That's perfect. And a lot of, there's a couple of sellers that may have been unscrupulous and they said, oh, we're, we're not going to disclose because the rights owners, the bigger ones, wants to know the distributor because they don't care really about the seller. They want to go after the bigger fish. And if my client doesn't give me the name of the manufacturer and or doesn't authorize me to give it to the rights owner, there's something seriously wrong. And then just, Jim, you've got smart listeners. Have them use their common sense. Yeah, that'll keep you out of so much trouble. You know, one of the things I learned, I've been doing this for over 15 years, and I started very early on when I started teaching people how to sell online, you would get these just devastating sob stories and like, yeah, I was just going along business as usual and eBay shut me down for no reason. Well, you dig a little deeper. It's like, dude, you were buying iPads for 10 bucks from China and selling them for 120 for the last three months. Like, you know, when you find out what was really going on, it really, it's not as dangerous of a landscape as some people paint it out to be. You hear the disaster stories, but keep in mind today, as you and I are speaking, tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand or more sellers by now made a great living selling on the Amazon platform and it was completely drama free. And if they did hit drama, they call a great guy like you or they use their, uh, we've got Amazon seller insurance, which is another great episode of this podcast that covered them and helped them get through that, you know, six week suspension till they were reinstated. It's very rare, if not non-existent. I'm gonna make a pretty bold statement here and just see how you feel about this, Jeff. I hadn't run this one past you yet, but I've yet in my 15 years to run into someone who was just completely cold turkey, suspended, and they were completely innocent, hadn't done anything wrong. They'd paid attention to all the rules and just bam, they got the hammer dropped on them and there was no recourse and they couldn't get back in. You know, some people paint the world to look like that, but I've yet to run into those people. I just don't. The people who have common sense, like you just said, who when you get an email from another seller or an IP complaint from you know, from Amazon, you pay attention to it, you do something about it, you take some action, you let them know you're going to fix this, you cooperate, you know, your business keeps right on rolling. There's always a way forward. What do you think? I mean, have you heard of those cases where people just got the, the hammer dropped on them for no reason? No. And if you go back to the principal example, every time I went into the principal's office, and it was kind of frequent, I knew exactly what I did wrong. That might be another good show, man. Let's talk. Let's hear about that sometime. <laughs> But, but along those lines, Jim, I urge my clients always to tell me the good and the bad because I've had this scenario happen a bunch of times. They hire me for one particular uh, resolution and I resolve it. And then they'll get the e email from Amazon saying that, yeah, this complaint is withdrawn, but you didn't address these ones. And if they never told me about those, sometimes 
quote unquote, our story to Amazon won't be congruent with the other complaint. So I can't formulate the big picture strategy and help the business rather than just looking through a microscope and helping with one small issue. Always disclose to your attorney the good and the bad. It's the classic scene from like every episode of Law and Order, man. About 45 minutes in, the lawyer's coming in and like, you didn't tell me this detail. You should have told me this at the <laughs> beginning, right? I mean, it's the same thing with this. Like, I, you need to know everything. Like good, bad, ugly. What have you done? So send me all the, not just the pretty emails that you sent yeah, to the, the other absolutely. seller. Send me the ugly ones too. We need to know what's going on here. So, you know, yeah, absolutely. If you're going to bring a lawyer in, man, open up the books, man, show them the whole deal and let you do your job with excellence. I think this has been a great episode. What I'm curious to see is what other questions our selling community has. And it, again, it's, this isn't just Amazon. It's, it could apply to eBay or your own website. And these issues pop up when you find yourself in need of a lawyer or you think you might find yourself in need of a lawyer, Jeff is a good guy to call. Yes, there's other guys out there that do this, but the thing that impresses me with about you, Jeff, is one, you're very plugged into our community. You're going to be at our event. Like I said, uh, you come highly recommended from Cynthia, who is one of our suspension uh, experts in our community and several others. Everyone who's used you has just said, man, this guy knows his stuff. He's responsive. You're, you're super smart, dude. You got all these advanced degrees. I don't even know what all these things are, dude. I mean, you're just like not only book smart, but street smart and approach it's like the triple threat. So uh, honored to know you, <laughs> honored to hang out with you, man, and uh, can't wait to see you at our event and, and shake hands and thank you for your service to our community. But uh, anything you want to uh, throw out there before we wrap up, man, I think we covered some real good ground. Yeah, two things, Jim. I am more than happy to get on another podcast if there's follow-up questions from your community. And the second thing that I ask, I know when I do these podcasts or interviews or go to a conference, I get like 50 emails and 20 calls all at once. Um, so if you're listening out there and you have a problem, kind of triage it. If it's a today thing, give me a call today. But if it can wait a little bit, sure, uh, call me later in the week or next week. Sure. And, and you know, you may want to uh, you may want to hire me to help you systemize your business, dude. You need to outsource some of this stuff because <laughs> I can tell Absolutely. you this, man. You are in a mega growth cycle right now following this industry. Just I mean, the numbers don't lie, buddy. I mean, you, you're seeing it. We are 6% into the biggest change in commerce history. That's the shortest way I can say it. We're 6% in, and it's already this unimaginably massive tidal wave of opportunity and activity. We're only 6% in. And that's where I get that 6% number is that's how much retail is done online versus offline. As of right now, we're 6 or 7% is the number, heading quickly towards... 30, 40% in the next decade or so. So those of us who are kind of pioneering into the wilderness with this whole concept, it, we're discovering new worlds that we can't even imagine yet of opportunity. And so your services, and you're going to need a team of Jeffs. And, and uh, we'll have to think that through, man. <laughs> I can help you build that system out sometime. We'll talk about it. But man, you've been a great guest. Very excited to, to finally connect. And I think our listeners benefited greatly. And now you said, did, did we hit everything, buddy? Is there any other final notes before I wrap it up? Yes, sir. I mean, I think we covered a lot in a short amount of time. We so did. people will probably have some follow-on questions. Yeah, I can't wait to, to have you back on then. And yeah, please do send me your questions. Great segue into the, the wrap-up here. Go to silentgym.com slash podcast. There is a link there that you can send us. Or you can email support at jimcockrum.com anytime you want as well. And we've got my team there who can filter through the, the stuff you send us and we'll make sure you get to the right person. If you have questions for Jeff, you can just send them to me. We'll forward them over. We'll have all the 
notes from today's episode, including all the great resources Jeff gave us. And I think we'll wrap it up right here. Man, listener, I am so appreciative. You just gave us a big chunk of your day today. And as always, I hope the return on investment is huge. I'm grateful for the time you spent with us. I can't wait to do this again. This is Jim Cockrum of Silent Sales Machine Radio. Our guest today was Jeff Brilowski, who is my lawyer buddy, man. And I want him in my corner when I run into this stuff on Amazon and eBay selling online. And I think you should too. All right. God bless you, listener. Thanks for your time. We'll do this again real soon. Thank you, Jim. 